The Negro Leagues Museum tells more than the story of baseball. It tells us how Negro baseball was the starting point of a social movement and the importance of economic empowerment. This is what started the ball of social progress rolling in our country, baseball. And so the Negro League plays a very important part of that story. And that's why I always say that the story of the Negro Leagues is much bigger than the game of baseball. Yet it's still just a tiny part of the great story of the game of baseball. The exhibits and archives in the Black Archives of Mid-America tells a deeper story than one might think about the African-American community in Kansas City. When people think of Kansas City and 18th and Vine, where we are, they just think about music. But there were businesses, all kinds of businesses here. Um, and the black community was actually self-contained. Explore the richness and depth of Kansas City's black history from sports and jazz to food and social advancement on World Footprints with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. The Negro Leagues is more than a story about baseball. It's the story of the beginning of the civil rights movement. It's the story about all of the players who broke the color barrier and signed with major league teams during the Jim Crow era. As Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, tells us, the leadership that emerged as a result of the leagues and the backstory of the Negro League players deserves more than a footnote in the story of baseball in our country. When the story of America is told, the Negro Leagues stand at the intersection of sports and society and the country's racial divide. For those who don't know or cannot imagine a time of segregated sports leagues, what did the Negro Leagues represent, and why is it important to tell that story? For me, the Negro Leagues represents one of the most important stories, not in baseball history, but in American history. And I think that's the important role that the Negro League Baseball Museum plays in trying to help convey just why that is. Because for those who just simply look at this as a baseball story, they're missing really the greater point here. This is a story about the importance of economic empowerment. This is a story about an unprecedented level of leadership that emerged as a result of these leagues that were formed initially here in Kansas City in 1920. But then ultimately, guys, this is a story about the social advancement of America as Jackie Robinson is handpicked from the great Kansas City Monarchs to break baseball's nearly six-decade-long color barrier. And there is no question that Robinson's breaking of the color barrier wasn't just a part of the civil rights movement. It was the beginning of the civil rights movement in this country. And you think about it. This is 1947. Uh, this predates those more noted civil rights occurrences. This is before Brown versus the Board of Education. This is before Rosa Parks' refusal to move to the back of the bus. As my dear friend, the late, great John Buck O'Neill would so eloquently say, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was a sophomore at Morehouse College when Robinson signed his contract to play in the Dodgers organization. President Truman would not integrate the armed forces until a year after Jackie. So for all intensive purposes, this is what started the ball of social progress rolling in our country baseball. And so the Negro League plays a very important part of that story. And that's why I always say that the story of the Negro Leagues is much bigger than the game of baseball, yet it's still just a tiny part of the great story of the game of baseball. 
Now, this museum is in Kansas City, which is also the home of the Kansas City Monarchs, the most successful team in Negro League's history. Why is this museum in Kansas City? Because Kansas City is the birthplace of the Negro Leagues. Rube Foster led a contingent of eight independent black baseball team owners into a meeting that took place at the old Paseo YMCA, just a block and a half uh, away from the, where the Negro Leagues Museum currently operates. And, and they met there, and that's where they signed the documents to start the Negro National League. It was February 13, 1920. So we are about to embark on a 100-year anniversary of the birth of the Negro Leagues. But for those who were wondering why a Negro Leagues museum is in Kansas City, it is in its proper place because the history, the origin of these leagues began in Kansas City in 1920. Mm. And and as you mentioned, you know this year this year marks the centennial. So I know you all are going to be partying down in Kansas City. <laughs> what what are some of the special celebrations you're going to have? Well, the big celebration uh, jump starts on February 13th as we go back into the old Paseo one. I'm sorry, go back into the Paseo YMCA 100 years from the date that the leagues were established, February 13, 1920. On February 13, 2020, we're going back into the building to commemorate that milestone occasion and then basically jumpstart a year-long celebration, which will include events like our Jazz and Jackie celebration on April the 11th every year over the last four years. We celebrate Jackie Robinson and his Kansas City connection. Mm-hmm. Again, a lot of people who come here had no idea that Robinson's illustrious professional career began in the Negro League. Guys, I think they think Jackie just walked out of nowhere and started <laughs> playing for the Brooklyn Dodgers. But his real rookie season was 1945 here in Kansas City. And when he, that year he spent in Kansas City, he fell in love with everything that Kansas City's known for barbecue and jazz and so we have this event every year that celebrates his jazz connection and so on april 11th saturday april the 11th it will be our annual jazz and jackie celebration april 15th we debut a brand new exhibit called barrier breakers and the barrier breaker exhibit will chronicle all of the players who broke their respective major league teams color barriers we know the story of jackie intimately and rightfully so But this played out over a span of 12 years. It took 12 years before every major league team had at least one black baseball player with the Boston Red Sox being the last team to integrate when they signed a guy named Pumpsy Green, who we sadly lost late last year. And so this exhibit will chronicle all of their stories because I can tell you now, it didn't get any easier for Pumpsy Green in 1959 than it did for Jackie Robinson in 1947. And, and these other trailblazers deserve to be more than just a footnote in baseball history. And then as we move through the, the course of the year, May 17th is our salute to the Negro Leagues and Tanya dressed to the nines. Oh, <laughs> and, I bet. And, uh-huh. And dressed to the nines is our annual celebration with the Kansas City Royals where, believe it or not, guys, we get baseball fans to put on their Sunday best the way they used to dress to go to Monarch games. Wow. You know, because oftentimes we were leaving church going to the the ball game. And and so everybody left church in their finery looking good. And, Mm -hmm. And so for one game out of the year, we do this event where we get fans to dress up in their Sunday best 
The Royals, of course, will be wearing the Kansas City Monarch uniforms. This year, we're playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. They're going to be in the 1947 Brooklyn Dodger uniforms. So essentially, it's going to be Jackie Robinson versus Jackie Robinson. So it's going to be an exciting day and to see and, and the women, Tanya, they go all the way vintage. I mean, they've got the hats, the <laughs> pearls, the purses, you know, the whole nine yards. They got the gloves on. The men are rocking their fedoras. It is such a fabulous time. I call it the most fashionable event in baseball. I dress to the nines day and salute to the Negro Leagues here. June 13th is our Hall of Game ceremonies. Uh, August 1st is our mm. annual Heart of America Hot Dog Festival. And then we will close the year with a star-studded national gala, which will be held here in Kansas City on Saturday, November the 14th. And there'll be some other things that will happen in between those times as well. But those are the key events that are going to take place over the course of this year. Boy, well, I know you all are going to make history in Kansas City yet again this year. (laughs) Yeah, no, we're excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. Now, what is special about how the museum tells a story of players, especially the lesser-known players and and teams of the Negro Leagues? Um, Because we may not think of the Negro Leagues in terms of living history, but we still have people like uh, Hall of Famer Hank Aaron still with us um, to share his Negro League history. And who are some of the others? Yeah, well, you stop to think about it, and and I talk about this, and really have talked about this in recent days, the two greatest living major leaguers, and I don't think you'll get very much argument from any baseball fan, Henry Aaron and Willie Mays. Mm. They're the two greatest living major leaguers, and both of them come out of the Negro Leagues. And, And I think it gives you an example of the tremendous talent That was there in the Negro League because they were good young players in the Negro Leagues who developed into great major league stars. But there were other guys, as you mentioned, Tanya, lesser known players who were just as good. So when I hear the late, great Buck O'Neill say that Oscar Charleston was Willie Mays before we ever knew who Willie Mays was, it's an eye opener for a lot of baseball fans because we all know how great Willie Mays was. Now, again, a lot of people did not know that his career began in the Negro League with the Birmingham Black Barons mm. or that Henry Aaron's career began in the Negro League with the Indianapolis Clowns. When he was 18 years old, a skinny cross-handed hitting infielder. Uh-huh. And he goes to the Indianapolis Clowns, and both of these guys are going to be in everybody's top five greatest players of all time and they all come out of the negro leagues and that's not to mention those who we've lost now the ernie Bankses of the world the roy Mm -hmm. campanellas of the world my dear friend the late great monty irvin who could have very easily been the first to break the color barrier guys like that don newcomb who we sadly lost last year the late great Minnie minoso these are household names in the major leagues but these players all transitioned from the negro leagues Hmm. And, and i tell people all the time had the doors opened before 1947, yeah, had they opened before 1947, I sincerely believe that the record books would be entirely different. Because when I hear someone who I have the utmost respect for, Monty Irvin, say that I played with Willie Mays and I played against Henry Aaron and neither of them 
or Josh Gibson. It just makes you wonder, damn, how good was Josh Gibson? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. And so, and we missed this. And I think as baseball fans, we were all cheated. We should have seen all the great stars, irregardless of color, mm. take the field at the same time. And we can only imagine just how much better our game would have been. We saw what happened after 1947. And as I tell my guests all the time, they didn't learn how to play baseball after 1947. They were playing great baseball well before 1947. Mm -hmm. Now, what attracted you to the museum, and how did you come to know the history of the Negro Leagues when you were growing up? It's an amazing story in its own right. I started here as a volunteer in 1993. Who knew? Yeah, there's no way in the world you could have seen this coming. You go from volunteering to becoming the president of the organization that I absolutely fell in love with. And I fell in love with the story, and I fell in love with the amazing athletes who made this story. And as a baseball fan, honestly, guys, I didn't know a whole lot about the Negro Leagues. I mean, I knew the name Satchel Page and Cool Papa Bell and Josh Gibson because these names had transitioned mainstream. But I had no idea about the breadth, the depth, the scope, the magnitude of what these leagues represented both on and off the field. And so as I got introduced to it, I became almost engrossed in it. And I wanted to learn as much as I could learn And I started meeting the players, including my dear friend, the late, great John Buck O'Neill. And I tell people all the time, once you're bitten by the Buck bug, it's a wrap. You just (laughs) wanted to be on Buck's team. You know, the charisma and the passion that he had and the dedication for wanting to make sure that they were not forgotten. And I think in the final equation, that's what we all want. We want people to remember us. And Buck was so committed to making sure that those unsung heroes of the Negro Leagues would not be forgotten. But I think even more important that the life lessons that stem from this story, refusing to give up in the face of adversity. When other people say you can't, I say I can, and I'll show you. That fighting spirit and determination that propel those who had a dream of playing baseball in this country. And and they were willing to endure whatever social adversity confronted them as they traveled the highways and byways of our country to fulfill that dream. Well, there's a transcending message that stems from these kinds of stories of passion and perseverance and pride, determination. And and that's what the Negro League Museum embodies, that Mm. spirit. I'll be honest, guys, there's nothing sad about this story. The backdrop is against segregation, but that's not the focus. Sometimes mm. we, we focus so much on the adversity, but here at the Negro Leagues Museum, we focus on what they did to overcome the adversity. Mm. That's the real story. Mm-hmm. Now, with participation in baseball at a low, particularly within the African-American community, uh, with many of our best athletes playing basketball and football, how concerned are you about about that participation, given that we've gone from the historic interest in baseball and wanting to break that color line, and how can the museum play a role in perhaps helping to change that trend, at least here on the well, Yeah, no, I, I think we play a great role, and I think that's part of the reason that you've seen this relationship that we have with Major League Baseball continue to evolve. Because as Major League Baseball tries to remedy what has happened over the last 
30 years with the, the rapid decline of African-American participation in our sport. You see, baseball is still the most diverse sport of all the major sports. They're getting players from all over the globe. But as you pointed out, the number of African-American participation has dwindled tremendously. And that is alarming to us. And, and so as we partnered with Major League Baseball and the Kansas City Royals and the Players Association to build what is number seven of the Urban Youth Baseball Academies, which is right behind the museum. And, and these academies are starting to emerge to try and do things to basically take away the economic barrier that might be preventing kids from having a chance to play this game. And, and, and we, that's what we want. We want all kids to be able to afford the opportunity to play our sport, a sport that was once a blue-collar sport when we mm -hmm. played it because it was a sandlot game. You got the neighborhood kids, you went out and you played, and it didn't matter how many kids you had. You divided whatever the number of kids were, and you played, and then you made up your own rules to go along with it. So if you hit the ball in Mrs. Jones' yard, you were out. And, and so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and hopefully I, didn't break yeah. windows in the yeah. process. Hopefully you didn't break Mrs. Jones' window because you <laughs> knew what was going to happen then. And so, but today, you know, and it hurts me to say that sandlot baseball is a thing of the past. Yeah, kids won't do that anymore. So if this sport is not organized, they don't play. But when it became organized, it became extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. And now you've got to play on these travel teams. and You've got to have all the equipment and everything that goes along with it. And it was pricing kids out. And so Advents like this Urban Youth Academy is helping bridge that gap. But what I love, and like I said, there are eight of these academies across the country, but there's only one here in Kansas City that essentially has a Negro Leagues Museum attached to it. And so it's important that these urban kids can see themselves in all their glory as it relates to their legacy in the sport. So when they come into the Negro Leagues Museum, they see people who look just like them who played this game as well as anyone played this game. But guys, not only did they play the game, they owned teams. They were managers. They were hmm. coaches. They were traveling secretaries. They were team physicians. They fulfilled every aspect of the business of the game of baseball. So, yes, we want them to dream of playing in the major leagues. But we also want them to see themselves in the other opportunities and capacities that come along with our great sport. And I think that's a tremendous role that we play. So, yes, we're committed to preserving the history of the Negro Leagues. But we're, we also have a vested interest in wanting to influence the game the way it's being played today and hopefully the way that it will be played in the future. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, I, I want to uh, bring to your attention the story of a lesser-known uh, Negro League player that uh, you may or may not know. It's my grandfather. His name was Paul Cunningham, and he played baseball, and he was uh, for – I thought it was a twins. The only photograph I have of him has uh, his uniform with uh, twins on it. And I thought it was Kansas City twins. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh -huh. he, was, he was also a scout for the Angels and the Orioles. Oh, that's and, oh wow. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, you know, with people, um, really lesser known people, like my grandfather, uh, who never made the major leagues, would there be anything in the museum's archives about uh, people of his stature? Yeah, possibly. Because, you know, for us, 
it doesn't matter what your level was in the Negro Leagues. If you played, we love to have the information. So if it's not, it's only because we've just never been in a position to get the the information or to get the photographs or know. And so it's still an evolving process mm-hmm. for us. But you can imagine every now and then people will come into the museum and they will see their loved one in a picture on the wall. <clears throat> and it, you can imagine it's very emotional. And sometimes they didn't even know that this loved one played in the Negro Leagues because many of the guys, they really didn't talk a lot about their baseball careers. You know, they were just doing what they love. And, and so they didn't talk a lot about it. And sometimes these distant relatives will come in and see their uncle or see their great grandfather on the wall and it blows them away. And I tell people all the time, I wish we had started this museum 25, 30 years before we did, mm-hmm. because we would have a whole lot more stuff to share with people. And I'd say 95% of the items on display at the museum were donated by the players and or their families. But so many of the legendary players had passed away. So the guys who at the heart of the Negro Leagues, the 30s and 40s, they're virtually all gone. But those early era black baseball players, you know, we don't get to enjoy as much on them as we do moving forward with some of the contemporary, more I should say more contemporary black baseball players of that era and so Uh it's it's still a continuum and it's still an evolving process but we're out there scouring trying to acquire as much stuff as we can trying to bring as many of these stories to life as we can and that's why people are fascinated tanya there is a display case that we have here of a collection of single signed negro league player autographed baseballs and they're donated by getty lee Getty Lee, of course, is the lead singer and bass guitarist for the Hall of Fame Canadian rock group Rush. And and so you can imagine when people walk into the Negro Leagues Museum and they see Getty Lee and they're wondering, the Getty Lee? And I'm like, yes, the Getty Lee. (laughs) He donated this collection. He's a huge baseball fan and unbeknownst to us, a huge sports memorabilia fan. Mm. And so several years ago, Rush was playing a concert here in Kansas City, and Getty had a friend that lived here who sadly passed away two Decembers ago. He says, I'm going to take you to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum. And like most who come here, he fell in love with the museum. Well, after leaving, this collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs come up in an auction. He decided that he would bid on them with the intent of donating them back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Mm -hmm. Museum. Well, he called his his office calls and says, Getty has a few baseballs he'd like to donate. Would you all like to have them? Well, naturally, we say yes, but we're thinking three or four that he might have picked up somewhere. Guys, it turned out to be 200. Oh, my. He has since donated an additional lot of 200, mm-hmm. now giving the Negro Leagues Museum one of the largest collection of single-signed Negro League player autographed baseballs anywhere in the world. But, and, and it's all due to the benevolence of one Getty Lee, a white Canadian rocker. Who knew? <laughs> but, but the reason I mention that, Tanya, because in that case, there are Hall of Famers, but there are also, as we say in the baseball world, cup of coffee guys. They didn't play very long in the Negro Leagues, but they're all very important to us because 99.9% of the names that are on display in those cases downstairs, they're all dead. 
We mm-hmm. couldn't get their signatures if we wanted to. Mm-hmm. And, and so to have this incredible collection, and, and the collection is made even more valuable by the person that donated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not only, guys, did he donate it, he came back and dedicated them. And, and so I'll be honest, I knew who Rush was, but I couldn't say that I was a big Rush fan. <laughs> well, you I'm are a now. Rush fan now. To explore the Negro League's baseball museum and to plan your trip, visit nlbm.com or click on the link to the museum on this show page at worldfootprints.com. You're listening to the award-winning World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tanya Fitzpatrick. World Footprints connects you to the world through powerful storytelling that uncovers the full narrative of our cultural and human experiences. Travel deeper, explore, and keep meaningful conversations going by visiting our website, worldfootprints.com. And make sure you sign up for our newsletter and receive a special gift we have just for subscribers. If you want to explore the history and lives of people of African descent in the central United States, the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City's Cultural District holds a treasure trove of resources in its extensive collection of artifacts. As the Archives Executive Director, Dr. Carmeletta Williams tells us, The Black Archives is the linchpin for nearly every experience that happened to people of African descent in the area, and the museum continues to share the stories of today. For the unfamiliar, tell us about the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City. Is it a museum in the traditional sense? It is a museum. We have uh, the Ewing, Mary, and Kaufman Exhibition Hall. There's a fixed exhibit in there with my eyes no longer blind, which was taken from a Langston Hughes poem. And because I don't want it to be an I've already seen it kind of place, once a month or so we rotate in, uh, in addition to that, a temporary exhibit. And this month we have uh, local artist Jerome Berry, and uh, he has graphic novels that deal with women's issues. There are about 50 uh, novels in the collection, and they deal with everything from breast cancer to um, domestic violence to making friends, going out with a girlfriend, first dates, you know, anything that has to do with a women's issue. He started doing that because he realized that his little sister didn't have much self-esteem. So um, the heroine in all of these uh, novels is always, uh, her name is Deja. But she wins because she learns to love herself. Mm, that's beautiful. We, I mean, so it's kind yeah. of a, a mix of um, history and you know contemporary uh, uh, issues. Absolutely, and we also have a very large um, archives at the archives. We have uh, thousands of pictures and documents and artifacts that people have donated. We buy nothing. Uh, we, we can't. We don't have any money. But our founder, Horace Peterson, started collecting buttons and brochures and storing them in the trunk of his car. And uh, this is actually the fifth building. He didn't live to see this building. But this is the fifth and hopefully final uh, place for the Black Archives. It's a beautiful building. It was the park's... Um, maintenance building, but it's, it's big and it's beautiful and it's been beautifully renovated. 
And we have uh, an educational piece. Um, Last night, KU Med Center's alumni had a program where they had a speaker come in and talk about uh, race and justice and health and how they all work together. Um, So, and we've done, uh, we have a recurring series on um, uh, our therapies in the music, on mental health issues. We have uh, financial health. We have a lot of history programs. Uh, On the 21st of this month, we are going to be hosting the Women's Basketball Association Hall of Fame. And women's basketball actually started right here in Kansas City, not the WNBA but the WBA, um, it's like the Negro Leagues Baseball League. Uh-huh. Okay. And so it started before the NBA decided they were going to have a women's league, which they actually took from this program. Mm. So, But there's a lot that uh, visitors uh, can learn about the African-American community in Kansas City just from um, visiting the archives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, And the permanent exhibit deals with the building of black Kansas City, um, black mid-America. So you will find out all of the people that uh, really worked hard to make this place work. Um, Mm -hmm. When people think of Kansas City and 18th and Vine, where we are, they just think about music. But there were businesses, all kinds of businesses here. Um, And the black community was actually self-contained. And... Mm -hmm. Desegregation destroyed a lot of that. Hmm. Speaking of the black community in Kansas City, how was its experience uh, relative to places that people may know more of, like Chicago, New Orleans, and Detroit, and even your cross-state city there, St. Louis? Uh, Mm -hmm. how, How would you characterize it for people who are unfamiliar with Kansas City? Well, it was equally tough for the people who lived here in Kansas City as it was for for place, people in uh, larger urban areas. Um, but there were solid black communities here, and most of them were self-contained. Black people had all kinds of businesses, churches, schools. My my church, Willis Chapel A&E, used to be the black, the colored school, as they say. Uh, and everybody in our neighborhood um, help to make that keep that school going and make sure that the kids there had what they wanted. Racism was abundant, just like it is every place else. But also, um, for some of the periods that we're studying now in in some of our our workshops, um, you know, there was so much corruption here. Um, the Pendergast administration, for example. We have uh, one of the black businesses down here in 18th and Vine was a private eye, a private investigator, and he used to be a cop and got kicked off of the uh, police force when they started doing their cleansing. Uh, Most of the black folks got cleansed. Hmm. But there are so many great stories here and so many people, and and they worked together. They knew each other. Um, And Hmm. Kansas City is... In a place where you can have all kinds of, we had all kinds of professionals, doctors, dentists, lawyers, barbers, um, beauticians, um, accountants, all of those people that are, are routine 
but we also had cowboys. Um, mm. A board member of mine, Anthony Arnold, just passed a few weeks ago, and, and the black cowboys in Kansas City um, are still connected with each other, and they still do things. So we're in the Midwest, so we get that mixture of urbanity as well as with that Wild West. And so many people migrated here from the South that there's also that Southern comfort in the feel of the life here. So give us a sense of what drew uh, African-Americans to the city during the Great Migration from the South and how prominent was Kansas City in the westward migration of, of blacks in uh, the early to mid-20th century? Uh, it was very, very prominent. My great-grandparents, for example, uh, came to this area as part of the Exodester movement. You've heard of Pap Singleton uh, telling people, you know, that there's, you can grow pumpkins as big as houses, you know, mm. in the area and, and selling them land and land uh, speculators, um, beating people, in a sense, out of their money. There's one story that I love about Nicodemus, which is on the other side of Kansas, and a woman's husband and son had gone out and made a place for them. And she said when she got there, she just cried because people were living in the hillsides like moles. Well, they weren't quite that bad off here in Kansas City, but when they ended up in Topeka as part of the Exodester movement, then they spread out. They were living in an area called the Barracks down by the river and the railroad tracks. And because they built them and there was no running water, then there was a lot of bacteria and people were getting sick. So um, a series of all-black towns developed because of that. And all-black areas here in Kansas City, I grew up in an area where I was the fourth generation born in that space. It was between 55th and 53rd Street and between Prospect and Waldron. And uh, the people in that area are still together. We have a website. We get together for reunions, et cetera, and it's called the Old 54th Street Neighborhood. But there were people there from Kentucky and Tennessee, like my great-grandparents, my um, mother's, by the maternal side, but also uh, my great-grandfather was from um, Seal, Alabama, uh, in Russell County, so that's southeast uh, Alabama. There were people there from Texas and from Louisiana. They came here because you could live here. You could get a job in the mines, you could get a job in the mills, uh, or you could open your own business. And uh, you don't absolutely freeze to death here, although it does sometimes get cold, but it was a good place for it to set up a settlement. And that's why folks came here. The churches were big and did the things that they always did for black people. You know, they taught literacy, they provided that social center uh, that folks needed and wanted. Mm-hmm. I um, I just interviewed just interviewed uh, an author who wrote a book about the Green Book called um, Overground Railroad, and I'm wondering how prominently Kansas City was featured in the Green Book um, during Jim Crow South. Um, I don't know. Is the real answer? I do know that there were a lot of people who traveled through here, and the Green Book was a wonderful source to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a good place that you can stop. You will be safe. People will take you in. And it's the overground uh, because you knew it. 
and it was published and not the underground where people were hidden and had to hide. Kansas City is a place of um, of comfort, but also where people helped each other. There are many um, stories about uh, people who moved in with with others when they got up here and rented a room uh, and then later ended up actually living with the people. Um, it's a receptive place. It's a warm place. And uh, people could find a place to lay down and lay their heads and be safe here. Now, Dr. Karma, you mentioned that uh uh, the archives are located in the 18th and Vine Cultural District, which is known for its jazz music. Uh, mm-hmm. Your museum is there. The Negro Leagues Museum is there. And uh, uh, why is this a must-visit uh, area for anyone who comes to Kansas City? Because this is the linchpin of Black Kansas City. Everything that happened here in this city somehow is is connected right here in the district. Uh, we know that musicians who came to Kansas City, they not only played on 18th Street, they played on 12th Street, they played all around the city, but most of them were booked by a company called uh, Theater Owners Booking Association, uh, TOBA. But for the artist, it was tough on black asses. Mm. And they would get stuck here and have to stay here. And many of them, some of them lived with people and others rented rooms while they were waiting for the weather to break so that they could continue on their journey. Same thing with the... um, And so we keep that story. We have that story in the American Jazz Museum. And when people all over the world talk about Kansas City, they want to talk about Kansas City jazz. But we also have the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum here, and it tells that story of those rugged athletes who... Um, often made incredible sacrifices for their craft, for their art, for their athleticism. And it's a beautiful museum. And the Black Archives is the linchpin for all of them. We have stories and uh, artifacts and documents about any, almost anything and everything that happened to people of, of African descent who passed through these these. Um, Streets. We've had uh, researchers from China and South Africa and Sweden and all across the United States come here looking for documents because we have them. We have those stories. And Kansas City is that kind of place where it's like um, a macrocosm, not a microcosm, of what black life is. Uh, and I mean from one end of the spectrum to the other, high and low and around and deep and we have those stories here Mm -hmm. so when we come and i'm gonna say when because we will be coming (laughs) um, (laughs) when we when we come to kansas city beyond the archives where would you take us to have a unique kansas city experience and um keep in mind we do like to eat (laughs) (laughs) Well, I would just take you all over this town. I would, of course, take you through the district and let you uh, visit Alvin Ailey Studios are here, uh, Negro Leagues Baseball Museum, American Jazz Museum, Black Archives, Ethnic Art is here, but also we have food. Um, barbecue, of course, we're world known for the Super Bowl bet was on barbecue. <laughs> uh, so I remember. For that. But we also have a lot of Cajun places and 
seven and soul food and all kinds of places that you would really enjoy soiree uh, steak and oysters down on the corner as is bayou bayou mm. um, on the vine which is a block from here um, but all across Kansas City, there are people here who make good food. To learn more about the Black Archives of Mid-America in Kansas City, visit blackarchives.org or click on the link on this show page at worldfootprints.com. I think this show reflects why it's important to not only understand our collective history, but also tell the lesser-known stories that add to the narrative. Kansas City is a unique place in America's history, a place that I haven't had a chance to visit, and so I'm looking forward to experiencing the Negro Leagues Museum and the archives there as well, and seeing this extraordinary American city that has made quite a mark in music, particularly jazz, and in the sports realm as well. Yes, and then certainly baseball is, you know, a sport I grew up with, with my grandfather being a Negro League player. In the words of Ernie Banks, also known as Mr. Cub, who I had the pleasure of meeting at the White House when President Obama awarded him the Presidential Medal of Freedom, He says, the measure of a man is in the lives he's touched. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we're honored that you have chosen to take this adventure with us. We're pleased to touch your lives through our storytelling. So thank you for spending this time in allowing us to connect you to the world through the stories we share on World Footprints. This World Footprints podcast with Ian and Tonya Fitzpatrick is a production of World Footprints LLC, Silver Spring, Maryland. The multi-award winning podcast is available on worldfootprints.com and on audio platforms worldwide, including iHeartRadio, Pandora, Alexa, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Public Radio Exchange, and many more. Connect with the world with a deeper understanding through powerful stories. Visit worldfootprints.com to enjoy more podcasts and compelling articles from international travel writers. And be sure to subscribe to the newsletter and receive a free gift. World Footprints is a trademark of World Footprints LLC, which retains all rights to the World Footprints portfolio, including worldfootprints.com and this podcast. The views and opinions expressed on the podcast and website are those of the guests and authors and are not necessarily endorsed by World Footprints LLC. 